John chapter 8, verses 12 through 32. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself, thy record is not true. Jesus answered and said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. For I know whence I came, and whither I go. But ye cannot tell whence I came, and whither I go. Ye judge after the flesh, I judge no man. And yet, if I judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am the Father that sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that beareth witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. Then said they unto him, Where is thy father? Jesus answered, Ye neither know me nor my father. If ye had known me, ye should have known my father also. These words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. Then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way, and she shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Whither I go, ye cannot come. Then said the Jews, Will he kill himself, because he saith, Whither I go, ye cannot come? And he said unto them, Ye are from beneath, I am from above. Ye are of this world. I am not of this world. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am, ye shall die in your sins. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? And Jesus said unto them, Even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge of you. But he that sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. They understood not that he spake to them of the Father. Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone. For I do always those things that please him. And as he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And all God's people said, Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your words unto us, that we might comprehend them and understand them, and indeed take them to heart, for in them is life. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Um, well, this morning I want to continue. I want to pick it up where I left off last week and uh, overlap a little bit here, but there are three main points I want us to appreciate this morning as we um, go about our daily lives. One is that all people are or were at some point in bondage to sin and in bondage to Satan. Next point is, Jesus is the light of the world, a light which must be followed. And third point is, Jesus makes people free. Now, I want to review again from last week, but it's important for us to appreciate that everything that takes place here, everything that the Lord says, has its relevance based on the fact that it, this immediately follows 
the Feast of Tabernacles and a woman being caught in the very act of adultery. She has been brought to Jesus as a means to tempt or test him. Uh, Jesus um, did well in the test. He proved himself to be faithful and just and without fault. Proved that he does not fear men because he judged the situation according to the Mosaic law of which he is the author of. Not only did he um, apply the law properly, but he also um, judged both the accused and those that accused her according to the Mosaic law. Now, I went a little bit long last week, so I didn't get to open up things just a little bit more, but I want to speak more to the human side of what this issue involves and what took place uh, last week. So, though it may seem like I'm reading a little bit into this situation, into this woman's personal situation, I want to remind us that she was taken in the very act of adultery. She was not accused of fornication. Adultery means that there was a breach in the marriage covenant that this woman was probably married. And so for the illustrative purposes of what I want to cover today, I'm going to assume that she was married. And it's important to do that because there is a spiritual parallel between what takes place here and what took place in the Garden of Eden with respect to um, Eve. Now I'm going to read read verses 9 and 10 of chapter 8 so we can appreciate where I want to begin here. And when they heard it, meaning the things that the Lord had said, being convicted by their own conscience, they went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now, given that the Lord had made a similar admonition to sin no more to the man he healed back in John chapter 5, whom we noted that just as this woman was in the temple when she received the admonition, so was that man in the temple when the Lord admonished him to sin no more. We came to appreciate that there's a spiritual and positional reality for all of those who are in Christ, who is the true temple. And that is, I read from Romans 8, and I'll say that again, that there is now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That's Romans 8, 1. And also, John, 1 John 3, 6, it says, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. And finally, 1 John chapter 5, verse 18, we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. And such is the positional standing of the Christian, all of those who are in Christ. Now, this is an important lesson for the elect of God to both learn and to appreciate. For with that understanding, we know that though we yet stumble in sin, though we stumble in sin, we are not sinners. That is not who we are. That does not define us. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 11, we read this idea of people being identified as sinners, being identified with their sin. There we read, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. 
Then he's going to flip it here, and he's going to say in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and such were, that's past tense, some of you, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So it's interesting to note that when people go around and identify themselves as by way of example, as homosexuals, they are placing themselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. They are placing themselves, they are identifying themselves as a sinner. However, the Lord says, such were some of you, but again, we have been washed and we have been uh, forgiven. Um, so though a Christian may struggle with some of these particular sins, either inwardly or outwardly, they do not define who we are because we are in Christ. So, were you to look at another person to lust after them in your heart and have committed adultery, but as one who is washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God, you are not an adulterer. That is not who you are. That is not your identification. We are new creatures in Christ, born from above. Our identity is Christ himself. That's why we're called Christians. It's like a woman taking on the name of her husband, because she identifies herself with the individual with whom she is one flesh with. She takes on that identity. We take on the identity of Christ because we are one flesh with him. He's in us and we are in him, and therefore we are called Christians. That is our identity. We rest in Christ and are at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our sins have been washed with the blood of Christ, and we've experienced the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Now, as I pointed out last week, Jesus pronounced no pardon on this woman. He did not say unto her, Daughter, thy sins be forgiven thee, which he did in Mark chapter 2, verse 5, when he healed the man sick of the palsy. On that occasion, we noted that he had first preached the word, quote, he had first preached the word there, and he saw their faith. And so, as he would heal that man, he said unto him, Sons, thy sins be forgiven thee. There is no mention of that here. So we closed the Bible last week on this poor woman who must be trembling inwardly, if not outwardly, because she was caught in the very act of adultery, which not only is a sin, but according to the Mosaic law, it is a crime punishable by death. The woman has committed a crime, something that we would call a capital offense. She's guilty of a crime, that um, the penalty of which is the death penalty. And it's interesting to note that in this country, there are still some states which have laws on the book that criminalize adultery, that you can be fined and spend time in prison if you are found guilty of uh, adultery. But nowhere uh, in any of our laws would you face anything as grievous as the death penalty. So if you think about this poor woman, she was quite likely pulled from a bed where she had been deceived into thinking that her life would somehow be better with her adulterant partner uh, than the life that she was presently living, which is not unlike the one Satan beguiled with, beguiled Eve with, uh, for he convinced her that God had left some good thing from her and that life would be better for her if she partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Not only would it taste good, but her eyes would be open and she would be like God. In other words, life for her would be better if she partook of that tree. And so what was the result? Well, she died. And that's probably not what she had in mind. Satan, knowing what God had told Adam, 
murdered her through deception. And indeed, the whole human race fell into um, sin as a result of that. So why did Satan do that? Why did he tempt Eve? He did it to destroy Adam, and he thought would subvert God. Satan went through the woman to get to the man. And Satan does that this very day, tries to go and destroy the church, the bride of Christ, to get uh, to Christ. And so I'm sharing this parallel with you because of what Jesus says in one of the exchanges he has with the Jews, which we read about in verse 44 of John chapter 8. We know that the Jews have been trying to kill him, and it's a point he makes again in verse 40, followed by a statement in verse 41 when he says, quote, Ye do the deeds of your father. And this has to do particularly with respect to what they have done with this woman. In verse 44, he says, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father will ye do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. These evil men have set this poor woman up as a means to destroy Jesus. They have subjected her to the death penalty in order to get to Jesus, just like their father the devil did to Eve. They would murder her to undermine Jesus' ministry. But Christ, whoever knows what is in man, by proper application of the law, pricks their consciences which convicted them of their sin in this matter and therefore the legal prohibition of stoning this woman. Having a hand in her sin, they could not legally stone her. And furthermore, being false or unrighteous witnesses against her were themselves subject to the death penalty, which is why they all quietly leave the scene from the eldest to the youngest. When we're reading in the Bible, we should always keep in mind a basic biblical principle, and that is that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to God's purpose. And complementary to that, what men or Satan mean for evil, God means for our good. So respecting Satan's evil work in the garden where he went through the woman to get to the man and ultimately to God, God meant that for our good. His plans were not frustrated in the least. The final result of the fall will be our eternal glory through the cross of Christ. In the case of the woman taken in adultery, we've seen that Jesus will, in fact, objectively apply the law when he judges the world and that there is no condemnation to them who are in the temple of Christ. So the situation set before us, as painful as it undoubtedly was for the woman, affirms redemptive truths articulated elsewhere in the Bible, truths that the saints can rest in as they sojourn in this present evil world. As for this woman, life for her suddenly got very difficult, deceived, as was Eve into thinking that she was on a path that would give her a fuller life, I can only imagine her surprise when the knock came upon the door of her bedchamber. Whatever dreams she had about her future, no doubt came crashing down around her as she was pulled from bed and then dragged through the streets and up to the temple where she was publicly humiliated and threatened with death. As we read in John chapter 8, verse 59, 
with respect to Christ. It says the Jews took up stones to throw at him. So we know that they had stones. They had undoubtedly brought stones up there to stone that woman. And though they were, could not legally carry out capital punishment, don't forget, they stoned Stephen. So a mob can do all sorts of awful things, including murdering people. Um, so her life was very much in jeopardy, is what I'm trying to share with you. So I wonder what life was like for her after she left the temple and headed back down the hill to her family. I wonder if her marriage survived the affair. I'm going to put that word in quotes because affair, the word affair is a rather benign word that belies all the emotional trauma and hurt and deception and all the collateral damage, all the mistrust, all the shame and broken relationships that her family might suffer moving forward because of her adultery. So off she goes down the hill with the Lord's admonition to sin no more. How does one do that? In Romans chapter 7, it says that, For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which I I would not. In other words, I want to do that's what's right. I don't want to sin anymore, but I can't stop doing it. How does one do that? And that's where she's left with this admonition. So when he said that to her, if we simply take it to mean that she should break off the adulterous relationship, the adulterous affair, and return to her husband, that's going to be difficult to do, particularly in light of her public humiliation. But it is doable. But if we take it to mean, look not on that man or any man with lust in your heart, in other words, commit adultery in your heart, sin in your heart, or to commit no sin of any kind at all, That's going to be really difficult to do, particularly for someone who is in bondage to sin, as are all unregenerated people. And I think we can appreciate as Christians that not only is it difficult to do, it is impossible to do in the flesh. It cannot be done. Men cannot stop sinning. Even Christians can't stop sinning in their flesh. It is impossible for someone who is in bondage to sin to free themselves from their bondage and sin no more. So as this woman leaves with the admonition to do that, which is impossible for anyone to do, to sin no more, we would hope that she would reflect on the consequences of her sin and how that when all her accusers had departed, she was left alone with Christ and Christ alone. She is left with Jesus, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world but more particularly the sin of those that believe in him. Now, in verse 24 of John chapter 8, Jesus is going to say as clear as a bell to those people that if you don't believe that he is God, you shall die in your sins. He says that as clear as can be. You'll notice when I read there, I didn't read the italicized portion. When you read through this section, and Lord willing, I'll cover this more next week, Jesus identifies himself as the, quote, I am a conspicuous number of times in this section. And if, as a side note, if you're going to do a word search on your computer, you gotta go, you're going to have to go look in the Greek because sometimes they've switched the word order around. But the, he's done it five times in here, proper word order. He's using the name that God gave Moses to tell the Israelites who he was. Tell them that I am, that I am sent you. Jesus identifies himself as the great I am. And though I did not cover this in John chapter 4 when he's sitting on the well with the woman, that's how he identifies himself to the woman. He says, I am the I am. (laughs) Um, um, A little different than that. But he identifies himself 
as the, as the I am. I don't have it highlighted in here where he said it. But nevertheless, it's in there. As clear as a bell, he identifies himself as the I am. And he does that also here in John chapter 8 a number of times. And verse 58, Jesus saith unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And so in verse 24, he says, clear as a bell, I say therefore unto you that ye believe that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am, ye shall die in your sins. And so the subject there is going to bounce back and forth, but he's going to hit that point a couple of times, that he himself is God. If you don't believe that he's God, you shall die in your sins. So continuing here, of a truth, if you do not, if you are not a new creature in Christ, you are in bondage to sin and to Satan. If Christ has not made you free, you are not free. And this woman is not free. And when she seeks to obey the Lord's admonition, as we all should, I hope that she will learn that truth, that she is in bondage to sin. And she will return to Christ, who is the only remedy for sin, the only one who can make her free from sin, and the only one who can forgive her of her sins. The reality of being in bondage to sin is one of the conversations the Lord is going to have up here on the Temple Mount, which we again note that it immediately follows the Feast of Tabernacles, the observation the Lord instituted to commemorate Israel's time in the wilderness after the Lord made them free from Egypt, which the Bible identifies as the house of bondage. It's important to recall that everything that they did or accomplished during their wilderness sojourn was by God's grace. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 21, the Lord says, Yea, forty years didst thou sustain them in the wilderness, so that they lacked nothing. Their clothes waxed not old, and their feet swelled not. We know that the Lord fed them manna from heaven, and he gave them drink from the rock, both of which point to Christ as not only the sustainer, but the sustenance. In other words, not only did the Lord feed them, but as the antitype, he was the food. And these are subjects that he has previously taught in the, in the Gospel of John here. So with the Exodus in mind, we should appreciate how Jesus starts off the next conversation with the Jews. In verse 12 of John chapter 8, he says, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. When the Jews dwelt in tabernacles in the wilderness, they never walked in darkness. They ever had the pillar of fire to follow at night. Again, speaking of God in Nehemiah chapter 9, now we're down in verse 19, or up in verse 19 of Nehemiah 9. Yet thou in thy manifold mercies forsook them not in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud departed not from them by day to lead them in the way, neither the pillar of fire by night, to show them light and the way wherein they should go. Jesus is telling him here that he is that light, that if they follow him, they shall never walk in darkness, that if they follow him through the wilderness of this life, they shall be led from their present state of bondage to the true promised land, the land typified by that which the Israelites reached when they crossed through the stopped waters of the Jordan River. 
Jesus is the light that leads to eternal life. He is the light that leads to himself, the source of eternal life. In Psalm 36, 9, Psalm 36, 9, we read, For with thee, meaning God, for with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light shall we see light. In thy light shall we see light. Jesus must reveal the light of himself to us if we are to see his light. Absent his grace, we cannot see his light, for men are blinded by Satan, the God of this world, the God of unbelievers, the God to whom they are in bondage to. Nevertheless, Christ, and this he does for his elect, breaks through the darkness and shines his light unto our hearts, revealing his glory unto us. A treasure, the Bible says, which we have in earthen vessels, the earthen vessels of our body, which scripture also defines as the temple of God. I'm sharing a lot with you here. I know that. You might want to listen to this again. I'm pulling from probably 30 different scriptures in the Bible, and I'm not giving them all to you because I think that would simply be too much data. So the treasure we have in earthen vessels is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, the light of Christ is indeed a treasure. So it's no surprise here that when Jesus shares this truth, where is he standing? In the treasury of the temple. And so he helps us appreciate these spiritual truths by the things that he does when he's out ministering to the people. Standing in the treasury, he is the treasure of the temple. And that light is the treasure that we have in earthen vessels, which God describes as a temple of God. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Now, in our narrative here, our Lord speaks to men who are in bondage to sin and Satan. And so what follows is yet another example of what appears to be two different conversations. This happens all through this whole section here, and indeed other sections. Jesus will say something, and then they'll say something else, and you're thinking to yourself, that's not related to what he just said. Why don't you inquire what he's talking about here? He tells them that he's a light of the world that should be followed, and rather than seeking clarification, they challenge his witness regarding himself. And so he addresses that statement with what is written in the law, and then he gets back on point, telling them that they can't follow him. They can't follow the light of the world. That light, that when it was revealed to Saul of Tarsus on the road of Damascus, was, quote, brighter than the noonday sun. The light that was revealed to Saul of Tar- on Tarsus, which is the Apostle Paul, was brighter than the noonday sun. And why do you suppose that they can't follow his light? Because they're blind. They cannot see it. They are blinded by Satan to whom they are in bondage to. They cannot see the light of life. Consequently, which they will die in their sins. They will die in the wilderness of this world, just like the generation that came out of Egypt died in the wilderness because of their lack of faith. So even though the Lord has told them time and time again that the Father hath sent him, they can't tell from whence he cometh or whither he goes. And the best they can do, the best they can come up with is to ask him where his father is and then throw in his face that they be not born of fornication. In other words, they're denying his virgin birth and calling him a child of fornication. That's the best they can come up with in this conversation here. 
Not only can they not see the light, but it is evident from the conversation that they cannot understand what he is saying. In verse 43, he says, Why do ye not understand my speech? Even because ye cannot hear my word. They don't understand what he's saying. For over 700 years since the time of Isaiah, nothing has changed in Israel. As a nation, they are spiritually deaf and spiritually blind. What was true in the time of Isaiah is true in the time of Christ. To Isaiah, God said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. They are in bondage to sin and to Satan. They are blind and deaf, and they don't even know it. And that is the condition of all unregenerated men. They cannot apprehend their predicament. And that is why we call it total depravity. They are People are in complete deprivation, and so much so, they don't even know they're totally depraved, which is why we as Christians need to have compassion on them and to pray for them that God will visit them and shine the light of the glory of God in their hearts as he did for us, that they may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he hath sent. The people with whom the Lord speaks are so blind to their spiritual condition, they fail to um, appreciate the reality of their political situation from which the shadow is cast, identifying their political, excuse me, their spiritual state. When speaking of being made free, they respond with indignation that they were never in bondage to any man. And yet Jerusalem has been subject to foreign control ever since it fell to the Babylonians more than 600 years prior to this conversation. After the Babylonians came the Medi Persians, and after them the Greeks, and now during the time of our narrative, they are subject to the control of the Romans. They have been in political bondage for over 600 years. And that's not counting the 130 or so years that the 10 northern tribes were subject to the Assyrians, nor the times that they suffered under the other nations in the book of Judges and at other times in the course of their history. So given the history of Israel, there is a big lesson to be learned here, a big picture lesson to be learned here. If God simply sets you free, that is, he opens the door and lets you wander around a bit, you will, like a dog, return to your vomit, and like a sow that was washed, return to your wallowing in the mire, which is what Israel did. God has to make you free in a broader context, and in so doing, will keep you free. When the Lord brought Israel out of the house of bondage of Egypt, he destroyed Egypt as a nation, he destroyed the Egyptian army, and he put the Red Sea between them. God physically made them free, or made them physically free. They could not return, nor could the Egyptians pursue after them. Their physical freedom was illustrative of God's work making his people free from the bondage of sin. But like all shadows, it falls short of the reality of their situation, which is alluded to here in our narrative. Having been made free from Egypt, the truth is the people wanted to go back. They wanted to return to the cucumbers and to the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic and their flesh pots. They craved the things of this earth and not the heavenly fruits, such as grapes, pomegranates, and figs, and they were idolaters. They were committing spiritual adultery, as we covered last week. They left Egypt with their hearts unchanged, which is why in a grand historical context, 
they find themselves back in bondage when Jesus comes. Jesus says in verse 19, You neither know me nor my Father. To know one is to know the other. For Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and the expressed image of his person. They did not know the truth, and the truth is Christ. They were idolaters when they were in Egypt. They were idolaters when they were in the wilderness. And they were idolaters when they were in the promised land. They did not continue in God's word, but rather profaned it. Here in verse 31 and verse 32 of John chapter 8, Jesus says, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. No one can continue in his word absent the grace of God. If you do, then you are indeed a disciple of Christ, and he has indeed made you free. This whole verse there is all tied together in the grace of God. When the Lord makes us free... He gives us a new heart with a revelation of himself so that we no longer desire the things of this world. We desire a better country, an heavenly country, confessing that we are but strangers and pilgrims on this earth. In a word, with our new hearts, hearts fixed upon Christ, we are heavenly minded. For indeed, our conversation is in heaven from whence we also look For the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile bodies, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. That's Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Through the cross that was necessitated by Satan's deception of Eve, but ever ordained by God, the Lord has given us new hearts and a new nature. What Satan meant for evil, God meant for our good. We now have a heart that is after God's own heart. Through the cross, not only has the Lord destroyed the works of the devil, but he has destroyed the devil himself. Through the cross, the Lord has overcome sin and made us free from our bondage. And through the cross, the Lord will destroy the last enemy, which is death itself. So given what has been set Before us here this morning, we should appreciate the truths the Lord teaches us that naturally fall out from the Feast of Tabernacles, how that all men were in bondage to sin and Satan, how that God came to us and freed us from our bondage and will sustain us every step to glory, ever providing the light of Christ to lead us in the way we should go. Amen.